Welcome to How to Live with the Rich, a limited series podcast about how the middle class can actually, practically, and biblically help the poor. I am your host, Beck Isaacson, and welcome to the show. friends. I think I can call you guys my friends, right? The fact that you are here means so much to me. So welcome, welcome, welcome back to the show and to episode two, all about human flourishing, which by the way, I do not like that phrase at all, human flourishing. I don't know why it bumps me, but it does for absolutely no reason. There are actually lots of words that bump me for no reason at all, including, let me think, petty cash, (laughs) leaflet casserole, cheeky panties, hubby, boss babe. I mean, I could go on. Am I alone in this? Is that super weird? I, I refuse to believe that I am the only one that gets bumped by words like this. But let's move on and talk about tiny happy things. This is my top of the episode little segment where I talk about something that I find happy and fun before we dive deep into what is often absolutely none of those things. And today I want to talk about Clarice. Who is Clarice, you might ask? Well, I am fully aware that my answer to that question will probably mortify most of you, but the truth of the matter is that Clarice is a little spider that lives at the bottom of my basement stairs. If you have not been to my house before, my basement stairs are something else. Every one of them is loose. They are absolutely not up to code. And even I, at five foot two inches tall or 156 centimeters for the rest of the world that is not America, even I have to duck to get from the stairs into the basement. It's an ordeal every time I have to carry laundry up or down the stairs, which turns out to be several times per week. Well, Clarice is a little spider, as I mentioned, and she lives in a tiny little hole that is at the bottom of my basement stairs. And when I duck to get into the basement, my face pretty much passes right up against her home. And she and I have what can only be described as a mutual understanding. I might even go so far as to say a friendship. We have had this little friendship for going on two years now where if I am going down the stairs and she is out of her home, which is not that often, I will just blow on her super gently and she will crawl right back into her hole, no questions asked. She respects my privacy, I respect her privacy, she is the gatekeeper of the stairs and I am the owner of the house. Now, before you go and get all extra horrified at me, I do want to let you know that usually I take any spiders that I find inside my house, outside of my house, but for some reason, I just have developed a little fondness for this one. We have an understanding for each other, and I am just really proud of her and her life and all the bugs that she has caught in her little web over the years. You know what? It is absolutely a case of women supporting women, and for whatever reason, Clarice makes me happy, and so that is my tiny happy thing for today. All right, and on that note and diving right in, on last week's episode, we talked about poverty. 
we learned, hopefully, that we are more than likely extremely rich, perhaps rich, rich if your name is Richard, but just regular rich for the rest of us. And as a quick recap, if you make more than $34,000 per year, you are in the top wealthiest 1% of people in the world, a minority which own 45% of the world's wealth. 50% of the world also live on $5.50 per day, which is absolute insanity. And on today's episode, we will be largely tackling one giant question, and that is, what is the goal of poverty alleviation? Because if we don't have a clear answer to that question, if we have no goal, then we just simply won't be able to find any solutions to the poverty problem, nor will we have any measure of actual success. For example, what if there are 12 hungry people in front of you and you raise enough money to feed them breakfast, lunch, and dinner for one year? Does that count as a success even though in one year they will be back to where they started? Was the goal, for example, to feed them for a year or was the goal to feed them for life? Is helping somebody for one year better than not helping them at all? Or let's make it even more philosophical than that. What if we have a person who is economically poor but extraordinarily happy with their life? Are they richer than a person who has an abundance of both money and discontentment in their life? And who who gets to decide that? And how do you even measure things like life contentment? And if we help to make somebody happier, but in the process they become poorer, does that make our efforts not a success? Or on the flip side, what if our efforts to make them wealthier actually makes them less content with their lives? Does that mean that we have failed? Hopefully you get the point that without a clear goal, there is no way to actually measure success. And that is what this particular episode is all about. And so I am so glad that you are here with us. And here is my answer to that question in the most simple and boiled down format that I can muster. And it is this. The goal of poverty alleviation is not to make them, and please know that I am doing air quotes when I say that, the same as us. Also air quotes. Let me say that again without interrupting myself this time. The goal is not to make them the same as us. I have had a number of conversations about this exact idea on various short-term mission trips that I have been on. I have, by the way, very mixed feelings about mission trips, which I may very well do a mini episode about at some point, but I have had the opportunity to go on, I would say, 15 plus trips throughout my life as both a leader and a participant to all kinds of places all over the world from rural New South Wales, Australia, to Malawi in Africa, to El Salvador, Papua New Guinea, Scotland, all over the place. But more than once, I have sat with people on these trips who come from large homes filled with big dreams and all these amazing routines. And as they have gone to these very poor places, often for the first time, and I have seen them and witnessed them wrestle through the process of witnessing poverty all around them. And I remember the exacerbated expression of one woman I traveled to El Salvador with as just an example. We were sitting in this tiny guest house and she looked around and it had no air conditioning and the paint was peeling off the walls and the chairs didn't match one another. 
and she was just exacerbated and she sighed and she exclaimed and she said, I just want to make it nice for them. And although I know that her heart was truly in the right place when she said that, there are actually a lot of problems within just that little sentiment because what she really wanted at the end of the day was for their home to be exactly like her home. She wanted El Salvador to become, in this particular instance, like the United States of America. And there are a couple of major problems with this that I am going to do my best to break down. The first reality is that the world simply does not have enough resources for all of humanity to live like her. For example, if everybody in the world consumed at the rate that Americans do, we would need three Earths to sustain ourselves. The United States makes up 4.73% of the world's population, but uses 20% of its energy, eats 15% of its meat, and produces 40% of the world's garbage. If the whole world, quote-unquote, developed like the United States, it would absolutely not be an attractive or sustainable place to be. It's just not possible. And secondly, in the USA, and I realize this is a general overstatement, but people are neither happy nor are they healthy. Now, before you come at me for that last comment, hear me out a little bit. And here is where we get to the first of our five facts for the day. Are you ready to get statistical? Fact number one. In the decade between 2008 and 2018, the average income per capita of Americans increased by 5.5%, but overall life satisfaction decreased and the suicide rate increased. Somehow we got richer and less happy in the same time period. And fact number two, between 1999 and 2014, the suicide rate in the U.S. grew by 24%. And of course, there are many different factors that contribute to this, and I don't want to uh, simplify it in any way, but one of the primary ones is loneliness. And this is not just a problem for the US, it's all over the place. In 2018, for example, the British Prime Minister at the time, Theresa May, appointed a minister for loneliness in response to a 2017 study that reported 9 million people in the nation often or always felt alone. Similarly, a former U.S. Surgeon General named loneliness an epidemic, linking its health impacts to that of smoking 15 cigarettes per day. The reason and results of this, I mean, are all around us. I feel like it's not a secret. Loneliness is an epidemic. Suicide is on the rise, as is depression and anxiety. It's not a secret. It's everywhere. Okay, fact number three. One study conducted on 41 million Americans reported a 63% rise in major depression diagnosis for children aged 12 to 17 between 2013 and 2016, just a three-year time period, and a 47% increase in young adults aged 18 to 24 within that same time frame. And this is by no means just an issue for young people as the highest percentage of major depression diagnoses within this same study 
were those aged 35 to 49 years of age. And why do I bring all of this up? Well, the bottom line is that people in the US, and again, not just the US, many places around the world are becoming increasingly unhappier. And I think one of the major reasons for that is that we have structured our entire lives to exist within this never-ending consume, earn, consume, earn, consume, earn cycle that is pushing us away from human contact with each other. For example, and coming to fact number four, during the last two decades, there has been a 33% decline in family meals within the USA. And fact number five, there has also been a 45% decline in having friends over. And to me, therefore, it just seems like we are losing depth of relationship. And we have poorly substituted that depth for two things, mass consumerism and hyper-individualism. We are collectively becoming richer and unhappier and unhealthier, all under the guise of success and progress. What we have done, I think, is essentially boil down life to one very simple but messed up equation, which is this. More possessions and more wealth equals more success. And therefore, we listen to the people that have the most of them. But the problem is that this definition of a successful life does not include some very, very important things, things like human connection and deep and meaningful friendships and rich family life and a relationship with God. I mean, to me, the most important factor of all. And in my very limited and humble opinion, I think that this consume, earn, consume, earn cycle is not what we are made for. It's not what makes us happy. And I think that it is becoming increasingly clear that our current model for life success is not conducive to a thriving human soul. Or should I say human flourishing, which as you know, I don't know why, but I don't like saying that particular phrase. And so I don't know about you, but most people in my circles, including myself oftentimes, I'm absolutely in this as well, are chronically tired and distracted on a mind level, a soul level, and a body level. I know that my mind is not forever dwelling on what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy, as it so eloquently puts it in Philippians 4.8. But instead, It's pretty focused on what is current and clickbaity and outrageous and controversial and numbing and, quite frankly, emotionally charged. And my observation, and remember I have a science degree, so you know it's super legit, is that we have all but entirely lost our ability to be present. Present within a moment, present within our own minds and our own souls, present at a dinner party, present with our families and even present with God. And this narrative of humanhood that we are currently living is just not compatible with a thriving human soul. And all of it begs the question, why do we want the global poor to become like us? Why on earth are we the standard for human thriving? And is it possible that a life that we deem to be successful is in fact not at all successful and maybe even possibly the opposite of that. I think it is absolutely worth considering because too often 
how we help and assist the poor simply invites them to become exactly as we are, which is, again, materially focused and individualistic and wealth-driven consumers, which I think is a huge problem because as we are constantly proving, wealth and happiness or wealth and life contentment do not necessarily go together. And so perhaps wealth should not be the ultimate and only measure of what it means to be a successful human being at all. And so again, to circle back, our goal in helping the poor cannot be to turn the whole entire world into New York City or Sydney, Australia or London, England. And yet we often act, I think, as if it is. We act like living these consumeristic lives in busy cities is the communal goal of all human beings everywhere. And my whole point of today is really just to say we need to stop doing that. We need to stop inviting the world into our arguably failing, unhealthy, crumbling view of what it means to be successful. And instead, I think here's the good part. Instead, we need to invite people, families, communities, and nations into God's story, his kingdom, and his purposes. All right, I don't know about you, but I need to take a break and get a beverage, so let's take a second and break right there. All right, we are talking about the goal of poverty alleviation and what it means for human beings to thrive. We have hopefully established that the goal cannot simply be to make everybody else like us because we are, to put it plainly, not the standard for human success. We are not the goal. God is the goal, his plan, his purposes, his model for what a successful life should be. And I think a great place to start unpacking what this means is understanding what makes a person a person, the wholeness of a person, because we all know that people are not just bodies, nor are they just souls. They are both, they are integrated and complicated human beings. I mean, I know I myself am very complicated, and this means that our solutions to global poverty or helping the poor need to address the entire person, not just their spiritual needs, not just their physical needs, but them as a whole human being, which again, I guess, brings us all the way back to defining human flourishing in the first place, aka, what does it mean for a human being to flourish? And I think that it's easy for us to figure out what that means from a cultural perspective, but what about from a kingdom perspective or a godly perspective? Because if we are going to invite people into a kingdom narrative for their lives and for a successful life, then, I mean, we really need to know what that is in the first place. And it's here that I'm going to introduce a new segment called The Resource Room, where I'm going to point you in the direction of some really fantastic books and podcasts and documentaries. I mean, the word for that is resources um, on, on these different topics. And today, I am going to start with a great one. And it's a book. It's called Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. And you guys, it is really, 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 really good and fantastic. And in this book, the authors, Fickett and Capic, apologies about my pronunciation on both of those names, but they define human flourishing as when a person's mind, affections, will, and body 
are in loving relationships with God, themselves, others, and the rest of creation. Let me say that again. Human flourishing is when a person's mind, affections, will, and body enjoy loving relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. It begins when we worship God and experience true life, purpose, joy, and identity in Him. And for Jesus people, we have experienced what this is like. We know what this is talking about. And this is the foundational pool for our efforts to assist the poor. It is what we need to draw from because we cannot just invite Jesus to fix people's eternal lives and then invite Western capitalism in to fix their daily lives because Jesus needs to be the Lord, not only of people's prayer life in their Sunday morning, but also their finances and their friendships and their holidays and their hobbies as well. And I think that sometimes we have a tendency to trust God with our spiritual lives while being perfectly content to control the rest of it, which is actually the most of it. And this is backwards because here is the kicker in all of this. A God who only saves people after death is very little help and hope for people who are suffering, lonely, in crisis, sick, exploited, or enslaved in their lives today. Our lives are whole, integrated, complicated pieces, and we have to start out helping the poor from this holistic understanding of their lives and who they are. And so what does it mean for a person's mind, affections, will, and body to enjoy loving relationship with God, self, others, and the rest of creation? Well, I think a significant part of that is not undermining people's ability and creation to work and to enjoy the fruits of that work, one of which is generosity and the ability to give to other people. Because if we see poverty as a purely material problem, then we will also fix it with simple material solutions. If somebody doesn't have food, for example, we will give them food. If they don't have shoes, we will give them shoes. If they don't have clothes, we will give them clothes. You get the point. And although on the surface this feels right, it feels very practical, it feels very easy, in reality, it is actually none of those things. How come? Well... To put it simply, giving handouts of this nature completely undermines the dignity of other people who are real, whole, complicated, created in the image of God, human beings, and it also quickly creates unhealthy dependencies and it undermines people's God-given task of working. And please also know that I fully understand that there are always exceptions to this, such as in the instance of illness or disability, but overall, the rule of thumb should be this. No poverty alleviation strategy should undermine people's ability to work and reap the rewards of that work, including, again, the ability to give to other people. Why? Well, because we are created to be integrated whole human beings and both our lives and our efforts to help those in need should reflect that. And so let's circle back for a second to the question that we began with today, which is this, what is the goal of poverty alleviation? And the answer is this, to bring people's minds, affections, will, and body into loving relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. 
And as we will talk about in the coming weeks, this is a whole lot more difficult than simply throwing money at the poor, but it is also so much better than that as well. It also requires us to be super self-observant and super humble, and honestly, it will involve us throwing off some cultural bias as well. And a great place to start with that journey is to stop assuming that the way that we live our lives is the best way to live or that we are the goal of human life success. Instead, we need to redefine what it means to live the good life around Jesus, which is often incredibly and usually very countercultural. Our economy says that greater consumption equals a better life. Whereas if we read the scriptures, King Jesus says that service and generosity and in fact dying to self equals a better life. It is not at all the same equation and yet often our efforts to help the poor greatly confuse the cultural definition for that of the kingdom. All right, I know that has been a lot, so let's circle back to El Salvador. We are sitting with my exacerbated friend who is struggling on our short-term mission trip. She is seeing the poverty all around her, and she wants to make it right for them. She wants to paint their walls and redo their floors and dress their children and build an extra bedroom. And again, on the surface, this may seem like such an innocent and maybe even a compassionate thing to think and to say, but in reality, this seemingly very kind viewpoint is actually riddled with problems. So let's unpack that a little bit and what on earth I mean. Well, to start, it assumes that she knows what is best for these people and that her wealth entitles her to power and decision over their lives. Without even having a simple conversation with this family, she inherently believed that she knew what their problems were and she also knew how to fix them. It also viewed their poverty through a strictly material lens with a very simple material solution. Because here's the deal and and the reality with all of this. Even if she had made all of her desired changes to their home, if she had painted it and fixed it and put air conditioning in and built an extension, In all truth, it honestly would not have sustainably changed anything about the situation of their lives. At the core, what she wanted to do was invite them into a worldview that marries success with material possessions. She wanted to make them like her, despite the fact that she and her society are at large discontent, lonely, busy, addicted people who are destroying the Earth's non-renewable resources. And so the point of that story is, of course, do not come on a mission trip with me because I will absolutely judge everything that you do and say. Um, I'm absolutely kidding, of course. But the bottom line is this. The, The goal is to do everything that we can to bring both ourselves and others to a place where our minds, affections, will, and body enjoy loving relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. This will absolutely mean that we need to change our lives and not just those of the global poor around us. How on earth do we do that? Well, keep listening to this podcast and I will hopefully get you started with some really great and practical ideas. There will not be a Tuesday tip today because this episode I think is plenty long enough. So let me just finish up with this. I would love to hear from you. I am currently recording this in my closet, in my house, in my robe, by myself. 
And I know that it's a lot. I It's a lot of new ideas. It's a lot of confronting things. And so I would just love to hear your thoughts, positive or negative. Do you agree? Do you disagree? What, if anything, you have taken away from today's episode? And so, you guys, thank you so much again for joining me today on episode two of How to Live with the Rich. As always, please subscribe, rate, review, share all the things. And I will be here next week for episode three. Have a great one. Thank you.